You know, um, I think most of us have a pretty good idea of what is and how to apply a parable in the Bible. But just to be on the safe side, a parable is essentially a, a simple, usually a very simple, short story that is used to illustrate um, a moral, or in this case, biblical, a spiritual lesson uh, using allegory or, or metaphor. Uh, to be most effective, obviously, this parable uh, needs to be relatable to those that are hearing it so that they can draw from it the conclusions that need to be, be drawn. For an example, uh, you don't need to, uh, would be very little use to use a parable to me using technology, uh, PowerPoints, <laughs> I don't have one this morning, by the way, uh, or something like that, because I wouldn't be able to really grasp it. Uh, so biblically, uh, what we have uh, in the 13th chapter of Matthew, which if you want to turn there, that's where we're going to be spending most of our time, there are two very similar parables uh, in which the Lord uses uh, a common experience that most individuals at that time would hearing would be able to at least on some level relate to, and that is that of a farmer sowing seeds. Now, the first parable is, is commonly referred to as the parable of the sower. That's not where we're going to be spending most of our time today, uh, but that is recorded, if you want to read it, it's in Matthew chapter 13, 1 through 9, and then later on, Jesus actually expounds upon that to his disciples and explains what he meant in this parable in Matthew 13, 18 through 23. But essentially, the parable is about a, a sower who sows seeds, just as a reminder. And as he's sowing these seeds, some of it fall on good ground, and then uh, that seed is going to flourish and grow. And then some of the seed falls on not-so-good ground, and as a result, it either dries up or it's choked out or the birds come and get it. And uh, so that's, that's basically that parable. And from that parable, there's a couple questions that really come out. First off is... Who's the sower? What is the seed? What's the soil? Or specifically, what are the four types of soil and what do they represent? And ultimately, which is something we should always ask when we're reading uh, something from the Bible, is how does it apply to me? Uh, and there's basically four major points uh, from that parable I think we can gather from ourselves. And these I'd like for us to kind of just tuck away, put in our back pocket because we're going to refer to them a little bit later when we're talking about that second parable, which is where we're going to be spending most of our time. The first point is that although the word, the gospel, originates from God, anyone who shares the truth of God's word, in other words, anyone who shares the gospel, becomes a sower of the seed. God is ultimately the sower, but we as his servants are the ones who are sowing the seed in, in that particular parable, in that example. And there are many types of seed out there, obviously. You know, we could go plant a garden, and you've got, you've got your, your squash, you've got your, your, your watermelons, you've got your uh, tomatoes, you've got your more watermelons, because I like watermelons. Uh, you've got your different types of seed, but in that parable, it's just one type of seed. It's good seed. It's seed that God has provided. It's the gospel. It's the word of God that's being sown. So it's, it's not the seed that determines what grows, 
it's where the seed is planted that determines whether or not there's going to be a harvest or whether or not there's going to be fruit as a result. The seed, is, as it's received, determines the type of soil, the heart in which it's planted. Now, how it applies to us today in that parable is that we continue to sow the seed. We continue to share the gospel, not knowing whether or not it's going to be received by a heart that's receptive, that's good ground in which that seed is going to grow. By the way, you may or may not in your lifetime ever see the result of that seed planted. We don't know if that seed is falling upon stony ground. We don't know if that seed is being going to be smothered up by the cares of the world and the thorns of life. Or we don't know if something else is going to come along and snatch it up from them. We don't know, but we continue as good servants to uh, sow the seeds of God's gospel. But in the second parable, things change a little bit. Uh, and that's where we're going to be spending most of our, our time today. And if you want to turn there with me, I'm going to read it. It's in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in 24. And I think Megan's going to have the verses up there behind us to read with if you like. But this parable is often referred to as the parable of tares among the wheat. Now, depending on some of your Bibles, some of the newer uh, Bible translations, I guess they assume you don't know what a tear is. They will actually call it the parable of the weeds. And the wheat. Uh, but either way, that's the parable we're going to be looking at. The parable of the tares among the wheat. And I'm again reading here at verse 24. And it says, he presented another parable to them. He who? Jesus. Jesus presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping. What people? His people. His servants were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, or tares among the wheat, and then left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, then weeds would also appear. The landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the seeds of the weeds come from? Verse 28, an enemy did this, he told them. And they respond, so do you want us to go out and, and pull them up? The servants had asked, and he said, no. When you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat among them. Verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. At the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles and burn them. But collect the wheat in my barn. Now, may have a lot of questions about that parable, but good thing is Jesus explains it. Because the disciples had questions. What do you mean by this? So in verse 36, he begins his explanation. He says, then he left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples approached him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field or the tares in the field. And he replied, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed, these are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of age. And the harvesters are angels. Therefore... 
Just as weeds are gathered and burned into the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin and those who are guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. I'm again, I'm going to read this really, just the big focus verse. I want to just kind of hammer into us. It's 24 through 25. He says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, His enemies came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. Again, this parable of the sower, in the the first parable of the sower, we discussed uh, what happens when we sow the seed of God's word. Uh, We don't know where it's going to fall. We don't know what hearts are going to receive it. We continue to, to spread the seed. But today, in this particular parable that we're focusing on, was studying on uh, essentially what we, the reality about what we as Christians can expect to see. Now, we would hope that as we are sowing seeds, that every one of our seeds is going to fi- find good soil. But the reality of the matter is that not everywhere we plant a seed, there's going to be growth. But another reality is that we're not the only ones sowing seeds. And that's the reality of what Jesus is trying to explain to him here. He says, look, while you're out sleeping, someone else is out there sowing. And that's what this particular parable was about. Uh, In the first parable, our Lord spoke about the different kinds of soil. But now the camera kind of zooms out. Or excuse me, zooms in, forgive me. It zooms in to where now we're only looking at the good soul. The other three, the path, the rocky ground, and the thorns, all that, all those other places that those seeds aren't going to grow regardless of what kind of seed it is, those kind of drift away. They're kind of out of the picture. Now, we're just focusing on good soul. So kind of in the mind, don't picture my front yard because it's just a bunch of Alabama red clay. I can't get nothing to grow out there. Picture now a beautiful field With furrows, they're plowed plowed nice and straight. It's nice, rich, dark soil. And you've got lots of good seed that's ready to be put out there in the ground. You can just know that that ground's just going to, man, there's going to be a great harvest. So now the question is, is what's going to happen in that good soil? The soil will, by its nature, produce an abundant crop. But if again, if we just stopped right there, that's only half the story. Because as we said, we're not the only ones planting seed. Something's going to grow in that field, depending on what's been planted. So today we're going to be looking at this particular parable. And I want us to kind of look at seven different elements, or seven different big questions or big ideas that come about in the process of kind of digging and unpacking this parable. Uh, The first 
in chapter uh, 13, verses 24 and 37, we're going to be discussing who the owner is. In 24, it says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So the one who's sowing owns the field. The one, according to verse 20, excuse me, 37, it says, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. So the Son of Man owns the field. It is his field, according to verse 38. And also according to verse 38, we are told the field is the world. This is a really big idea, guys. If you can grasp onto this and apply it to your lives, it will change your perspective on everything. Because notice, he's saying here, the sower of the good seed owns the whole world. Notice, Jesus says the one who sows the good seed, the owner of the world, is the Son of Man. In verse 37, Jesus used the name Son of Man 84 times in the four Gospels. And every single time, he's referring to himself. So in other words, Christ, our Lord, is telling us, God, Christ, Jesus, owns Everything. It is all his. And if we can grasp that, if we can really cling on to that, it changes our perspective. That house we're so proud of, that's God's house, not our house. That car we're so proud of, that's God's car, not our car. That job sometimes you curse that you have to go to, guess what? That's God's job he's allowing you to do. Right? The very breath in your lungs, the very blood that flows through your veins, every pump of your heart is a borrowed blessing from God because He owns it all. So once you get that, man, everything else just opens up. But there's an enemy amongst us. That's the second part, the second question, the second big point. In verse 13, 25, it says, But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds of weeds among the wheat and then went away. In 39, the enemy is the devil. The owner, Christ, has an enemy. That means you've got an enemy. And he's hard at work. And you cannot have a complete understanding of what's going on in this world. You cannot have a complete appreciation for what is happening out there. Until you take into account the fact that first, our Lord owns it all. But our Lord and we have an enemy that's out there trying to corrupt it. That's trying to break it. Christ tells us that his enemy is the devil. Now, there are those today that will argue with you that there's no such thing as heaven or hell. Well, there's no such thing as hell. We all go to heaven, just a different 
level of joy. There'll be those out there that tell you there's no such thing as the devil. They certainly don't want to preach the devil. But you know what? Jesus believed in hell. He said more about hell than anybody else in the Gospels. But he also believed that there's a devil. And he named him by name. He's our enemy. The power of the enemy is so great. And the work of this enemy is so vast. And he is so successful at sowing those seeds of weeds and tares. It took an incarnation of God, Jesus. A cross, a sacrifice, and his resurrection to bring that kingdom to defeat. Next point, let's talk about the seed itself. In Matthew 13, 38, we're told the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. In the parable of the sower, that first one, we referred to at the beginning, the seed was, of course, the word of God that is sown in the ground. But in the second picture, in the second parable, the seeds are actual people. The seeds are being represented as, as what happens as a result of the first, that growth, who are growing where they are planted in the world. Just as there are two sowers in this parable, there are two different types of seed. Thus, there are going to be two different types of people. Now, I've gotten in this conversation before because, you know, uh, you know we, there's, there's some that will argue, well, there's, look, God only sees two types of people in this world. There are lost people and then there are saved people. That's how we all want to break it down to. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what nationality you are. It comes down to one or two things. You're either saved or you're lost. There are two different types of people in this world. The weeds are the sons of the evil man. Those come about as a result of the seeds that are planted by the devil. The good seeds are sons of the kingdom. These are the ones who live under the rule of God in their lives. Whereas the ones, uh, the evil ones, uh, the one who are planted by him, they place themselves on the, on the throne of their own lives. They want to rule their own lives. They want to make their own decisions. Notice the destructiveness of the enemy's work, though. He sows seeds to destroy Christ's field. He doesn't have his own field. His whole purpose of sowing these seeds uh, in, in the field is to disrupt or to destroy God's field. He has no positive objective in mind. The motivating force of all of his work is simply to destroy the harvest. Now, do you ever scratch your head sometimes and just start to wonder, oh, man, why? Why is there so much evil going on? Why, why is the church so full of what I call counterfeit Christians? Why are there so many wolves in sheep clothing behind pulpits today preaching a false gospel? Why is all that happening in the church? Well, there it is. That right there is part of your answer. Because there's tares among the wheat. The evil one has been hard at work. So let's talk about the field for a moment. The field is, in fact, the entire world, according to 1338. 
Now, these words are crucial to the understanding of how to apply this parable in its completeness. Now, as I already did, I kind of gave you a, a, an example of how this parable can be uh, applied to the church. To understand why there's sometimes problems in the church. Because there are, uh, 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 there are wheat. There, there's, there's wheat here, but there's also tares. Okay? And sometimes that's used, this parable is used to explain those counterfeit Christians in the church. But this, this parable isn't about the church. Because the church isn't the field. The field is the entire world. I am uh, not, I can be a, John MacArthur, there are things I like about John MacArthur and then there are things that I don't like. Uh, he, he hit this right on the head explaining this parable. He says this, and, he, and it really helps us understanding. He says that this parable is a picture of the church in the world and not a picture of the world in the church. Think about that for a second. This parable is a discussion of the church in the world and not a picture of the world in the church. This is helping us to understand what's happening out there. Now, yes, we can take what's happening out there to help us to better understand what's happening in here. Also, what's happening in here. But in, in full application, this parable Jesus is talking about what we should expect and what we should do outside these doors. What's happening in the field, the world which he owns. And what are we doing with the seed that he's given us to plant? So that gives us a big question that we struggle with. The servants come. Master? Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? If God is so good, if Christ beat Satan on the cross, then why is there so much evil in the world? Am I the only one that's, that's rascal with that question? I'm going to tell you, every, every non-believer I've ever talked to, that's one of the first things out of their mouth. Well, if God is so good, why is there so much bad happening in the world? That's a big question. That's something every generation has to wrestle with. It's been from the very beginning, and it'll be right up to the very end until the harvest. That question is going to happen. God, did you not plant good seed in your field? Is this not your field? Why are there so many weeds in it? And the answer is, we have an enemy. People in Jesus' day assumed that when the kingdom came, when the Messiah came, that he would blow a whistle, I guess a trumpet, and it would be game over for evil. Victory, that's it. Establish his kingdom. Woohoo, we're done. And that's what they were looking for. But Jesus came the first time without judgment. Isaiah says in the second coming of the Messiah, he says in the coming of the Messiah, this is in Isaiah 61 verse 2, it says, uh, uh, the Messiah will, quote, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance. 
Now, in Luke chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus got up and he started to speak. He says he got up, he read this, but he stopped halfway through the verse. He didn't say anything about the day of vengeance. You see, grace comes with Jesus now. Judgment comes with Jesus later. So what's going to happen between then and now? Growth. There's going to be growth. He says there in Matthew 13, 30, let both grow until the harvest. Evil will grow alongside good until the very return of Christ. In Psalm 92, 7 says, When the wicked spring up as grass, and when all the workers of iniquity do flourish, it is that they shall be destroyed forever. They will get theirs. The harvest will come. But they will have a time of flourishing. They will have a time of growth. But here, let me tell you something. There's growth happening in the good seed also. Now, right now, as our perspective is focused on what's going on in our nation, it doesn't seem like the church is growing very much. But let me assure you, the Word of God is going out, and people's lives are being changed. And worldwide, in God's field, the church is growing and flourishing today. And it is in flourishing today in places that would amaze you. But sadly... Evil is also flourishing. This teaching of Jesus is what we need. We need the wisdom of this in order for us to sustain a lifetime of ministry. Because we need to understand the nature of this world in which we are living. Because I'm going to tell you, it gets this hardening. We get stumbled up on that question. Why is there so much evil? Why are there so many things going wrong? And man, I'm ready for a victory. All I'm seeing is defeat. And we get caught up in that. And like I said, is the world getting better or is it getting worse? The answer is both. It's getting better and getting worse. Because we're both growing. The good seed is growing and producing abundant harvest. But so are the weeds. That is, until the harvest. Matthew chapter 13, verse 30. At the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Right now we are living in a day of God's grace. But the day of God's judgment has yet to come. And until that day, that is what the kingdom will look like. Wheat and tares growing together. Now, I have heard it said, and sometimes in my own frustration, I have said it myself. God, I wish you would just, just let it come now. Pour out your judgment now. Tired of grace, God, it's time to lay down the law. Let's give some justice to some of these either.
But you know what? The last time in biblically when we go through the word of God, when God lays down the law and shows judgment, it's calamity. It's not a pretty picture. It's important to remember that bringing in the kingdom means pulling up the weeds. Pulling up that family member that you've been talking to or witnessing to. Maybe it's a son. Maybe it's a daughter. Maybe it's a mother or a father. Pulling them up. Maybe it's a co-worker. Pulling them up. Maybe it's a best friend. Pulling them up and throwing them into the furnace. That judgment, we're quickly, we quickly and easily pray for God. It's time for judgment. For that to come, there are so many who aren't prepared for that harvest. But thankfully, the work of the judgment belongs to Christ. And he hasn't given us that ability. He hasn't given us that right. That power is not ours. He calls us to live and to grow in this world until he comes and brings about righteous judgment with him. And it's at that point, both types of people will be beheld accountable. Yeah. Both types of people will be held accountable and judged. That day will come, and when it does, the weeds will be gathered and bound together in bundles. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John the Baptist is preaching, and he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and will gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with a fire that never goes out. Again, the, always the big question at the end of these Bible studies and at the end of these messages was, and it's not a selfish question, what's in it for me? God, how do I take this? And apply it to my life. How do, I, how do I take these scriptures? How do I take this parable and use it when I get up and I leave this building? When I get up and go to work tomorrow? Or when I'm at home this next weekend? What do I take this verse? How do I, what am I supposed to do with it? I'm going to give you three different types of ways to apply it. And then we'll be done. First is stay engaged. He says, let both grow together. Where God has you rooted down, where has, has God planted you, you should grow. Stay engaged. Unlike those that slept, you also wonder why there's so much evil, why is things happening? It's because for so long, so many in the church have been asleep. Not on, not on guard. 
He says, stay engaged and grow where you've been planted. One of my favorite psalms, I'm going to read it and then it's entirely. It's only six verses, but it's Psalm number one. It says, happy, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stands in the pathway with sinners or sits in the company of markers. Mark, markers. Mark, markers. Yeah. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction. He meditates on it, God's word, both day and night. He, God's, God's servant, the happy one, the blessed one, he is like a tree that is planted. You are not the result of some haphazard seed that's been thrown away or fallen out of somebody's back pocket. God has planted you. Beside flowing streams that bears fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. But the wicked, they're not like this. Instead, they are like chaff. What does Jesus do with the chaff? He gathers it up to be burned. And the wind blows it away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in judgment nor sinners in the assembly of righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Don't be on an agenda of withdrawal from this world. Stay engaged. Wherever God has got you planted, grow. And what do I mean by that? Don't be on an agenda of, of, of withdrawal. It has become more and more common, and I believe in the church, in this era, in our nation, for Christians to want to pull back. To, I call it kind of turtle up. They're going to pull everything in, the ice underneath their shells, and they want to just ride out the storm and hope they can last to the rapture. They're done with it. They're done with engaging with the church. They're done with engaging with the world. They just want it to be over, and that's how they live their lives. You don't see them. You don't hear from them. All they want to do is just not engage with anybody. But God hasn't called us to lay in bed, to ride in the boat. He has called us like, Peter, get out of the boat. Come. I want you to be at work. Don't be asleep like everyone else. I've got a job for you to do. Stay engaged and prosper and flourish is what he's called us to do. And secondly, let me finish this point before y'all throw me out of the church. We need to practice tolerance. It says let both grow Together. Now, the word tolerance has been hijacked by our culture. The word tolerance has come to mean something that it isn't. The word tolerance is being jammed down the throat of folks, and it, they're being force-fed a lie because tolerance isn't what they're saying it is. In today's culture, tolerance is supposed to mean acceptance. If, if you, you know what to tolerate, you're supposed to uh, uh, validate 
what these other people believe. But that's not what tolerance is. Tolerance used to mean and should mean showing patience, a godly patience, and forbearance towards people to whom you radically disagree. There are going to be folks we are going to radically disagree with. Now it's used to affirm what others believe. But there is no need for tolerance between people who affirm the same type of convictions. We're not always going to get along. We're always not going to agree. We're going to, sometimes you have to agree to disagree. If you agree with everything, why is there a need to tolerate it? Tolerance is, in fact, a wonderful Christian virtue that is needed where there are deep-seated disagreements. Listen, you're not going to get anybody you're not going to woo anybody and draw anybody. You're not going to be successful planting seeds in hearts. You're not going to, you're not going to be as successful in the ministry and the gospel that God has called you to be. You're, if you're out there trying to pull up weeds and you're up there trying to stomp on folks, you have to love them. That doesn't mean agree with them. It doesn't mean to affirm and say, well, it's okay, whatever. But it means love them. Care for them. Pray for them. Let you both grow together until the harvest. It means showing patience and forbearance towards people you find really difficult. And there are those you find it really difficult to be around. With whom you radically disagree. It does not, does not, tolerance does not mean passivity. It does not mean that you give up concern for others, other spiritual condition either. Jesus makes it clear that in this world, the wheat needs to grow alongside the weeds until the Son of Man comes. Why? Because you don't know what that weed eventually, that, those weeds might eventually someday turn into wheat. Growth hasn't completely happened yet. Let that completely grow until it's time to harvest or else you might be stomping out one of God's children, one of God's wheat. You don't know yet. It's too early. Let it, fall, let it grow and it's time of harvest. When God says it's time, let him be the judge. Until that, we should nurture and care for that field as if everyone in that field is wheat. And then let God determine who isn't and who isn't. We have a big enough challenge in our hands trying to deal with the sin in our own hearts. In our own families, in our churches. It is not in our power or our calling to root it out. Root it out. That's the work of Christ. And thirdly, we must anticipate the harvest. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. It says in 1343, God will harvest the wheat.
He will bring his people home, and the righteous will shine like the sun. The big question is, and we're closing, and brother, if you want to go ahead and start getting an invitation together. The big question is, is with whom will you be bundled on that day? I hope that each and every one of you, and even the ones that are listening, I hope that everyone that's hearing this message today will be bundled with life and with the people of God who submit their lives to King Jesus, the owner of the world, and will stand before the Father in the grace that they find him in. But Revelation 14 10 through 11 reminds us of what happens to those that are not bundled with Christ, those that are not bundled with the weak. It says, He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into a cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Right now, we both grow. There's a time coming. And whether it happens today or tomorrow or next year or next millennia, I tell you, we're one day closer than we were yesterday. There is a harvest coming. And the big question I have for you is, are you ready for that harvest? Let's all stand. Father, thank you for this day. I pray, Lord, that you'll let your word, Lord, not go out and return void. I ask dear Heavenly Father, Lord, that there be somebody here today that doesn't know you, that something that was said this morning will prick their hearts. Lord, I pray, Father, Lord, for saving grace in their life. I pray, Father, Lord, that for those of us that are among the weak, Lord, those of us that know you, Lord, as their Savior, Lord, that you would allow this message, Lord, not to just rest in our hearts, but churn within us to motivate us to be hard at work, to not be asleep on the job. Help us to ever be aware of our enemy that's out there who is working and Lord help, him, Lord, help us not to be outworked by him. We pray, Lord, for this church and the many needs that are within it. Thank you. Amen.